The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Let's uh, let's just pray real quick, uh, even as we're handing those things around. Father, uh, I'm so thankful tonight, God. I'm thankful for the book of Nehemiah, just what, what a treasure this book is, what a privilege it's been to study it, to learn it. God, I thank you for those that have come out tonight, Lord. I know each and every seat that's filled um, has a person in it that loves you, God, that wants to learn from you. Um, even if they don't love you, God, I know you love them and that you uh, want them to love you. God, I thank you tonight that we can stand on truth, Lord, that if we've come in here confused about anything in life, if we've come in here with pain or with brokenness, Lord, if we've come in here um, questioning who we are, Lord, that your truth answers all those questions. Um, God, I thank you that you are the eternal source of wisdom, Father. And I pray that you would speak tonight, Lord, through a broken vessel, (laughs) um, that you would give clear communication of your words to your saints. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Nehemiah has been an incredible book so far. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, Raise your hand if if anyone's here, you didn't get one. Is, Is there any extras? No, but is there, is, there, is there any extras? You got some extras over here? Raise your hand if you didn't get one, and if you have an extra, maybe we could, we could run one over to them. There's a $100 bill inside, so you're going to want one. <laughs> Just kidding. But seriously. Um, yeah, Nehemiah's been a great book. A phenomenal book on leadership. Tons of principles in there. Uh, last week, we just touched a little bit, um, as, as I'll talk about. We touched a little bit on spiritual oppression and, and uh, spiritual warfare, and I was actually really amazed by how many of you guys were like, well, I need to hear that. That's reality for me. <laughs> and so it, it works out good um, because this chapter is all about spiritual warfare. It's all about opposition. And so uh, for those of you, which it's probably all of you that are struggling with something at some point uh, in your week, in your day, having a hard time, hopefully this will, will be helpful for you. Um, Nehemiah is set about 400 years before Christ, 450 years before Christ to be precise. Um, essentially what was happening, God's people at one point in time, about 1,000 years before Christ, was a thriving nation, okay? A powerful nation, um, a nation with much influence over those around them. When they were under the rule and the reign of kings like David, kings like Solomon, kings like Saul. And then at one point, that nation was split, split into two kingdoms, the kingdom in the south, kingdom in the north, okay? Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Both of those nations in different ways at different times strayed away from the Lord. Can everybody hear me okay? Am I a little quiet? Um, Straight away from the Lord, rebelled in various ways. God called both of those kingdoms, both sides of Israel, multiple times to repentance, and they would not hear so just as God said in the prophets that he was going to deliver each of those kingdoms, north and south, into the hands of their enemies. Now, if you guys have your handout, if you have your swag, page two, if you can't find page two, there's a concordance, or uh, there's a, yeah, in the beginning, um, or someone can help you. Uh, I know this is really small. I'm so sorry. Uh, if you have reading glasses, uh, we actually have reading glasses for everyone. No, uh, we don't really. It's really small, but if you can kind of just see here, this is a timeline of Israel, okay, starting from Genesis in the beginning and ending sort of 
with the cross there at the end. That's Jesus. That's A.D., okay? Um, and essentially what you see here is you can kind of get a feel for where Nehemiah fits into the timeline. We have Israel as one nation, and then you notice sort of a fork in the road. Everybody see that? The fork in the road, that's when Israel became two kingdoms, kingdom in the north, kingdom in the south. You can see that the, on the, in the fork in the road, Israel on the top ends before the fork on the bottom ends, okay? That means that Israel in the north was conquered, was sacked, was taken away before the south. You see Judah lasted a little bit longer, and then sure enough, they were taken away as well. Now, I took the uh, opportunity to go ahead and highlight for you guys and circle where Nehemiah lives in this timeline. You can see just about before you get to the cross, I circled it in yellow, there's Nehemiah, okay? So both kingdoms fell, both kingdoms were taken into captivity, um, and then Jerusalem was destroyed, you'll see. Ezra came in to rebuild the temple, and then in a matter of years later, we get Nehemiah about 400 years before Christ. So take that home, just put it in whatever, stick it in your Bible. It's helpful when you study any Old Testament prophet, you can look at this and see where they took place in history, okay? If you're reading through 1 Kings or you're reading through 2 Samuel and you want to know uh, which prophets or which other books in the Bible coincide with those, you can pull this out. It might be a helpful tool for you. Um, and then I'll get to the second thing in a second. So, just to do a little bit of review, Israel is at the bottom, okay? They're at the worst place they've ever been. They went from being a mighty nation to being a divided nation to being a fallen nation and ultimately to being a people group, okay? They went from being a nation to not being a nation. They're scattered all over the ancient world because of Babylon in the south, because of the Assyrians in the north. They're taken out. They're humbled beyond humbling, okay? This is where we find Nehemiah in history, the point where Israel is at its lowest, okay? Now, in chapter one of Nehemiah, just to give a quick recap, we saw a vision planted. We saw that Nehemiah got word or or heard word of what happened in Jerusalem in his hometown, that Jerusalem itself had been burned, had been destroyed, it was in ruins, that his people were suffering, the remnant of Jews that were still there, and it broke Nehemiah's heart. And in that heartbreak, in that, pain, in that punishment, we saw that a mission was born, that out of that, Nehemiah decided he needed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's city in Jerusalem. And then We saw a petition. We saw him pray before the Lord, asking the Lord to allow him to do this. We talked about prayer. Chapter two, we saw uh, Nehemiah come before King Artaxerxes, who was the king of the Persian Empire at that time, literally the ruler of the ancient world, come before Artaxerxes. He was his cupbearer, as we learn, and ask him permission, basically, to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes gives him the right to do that, gives him favor, as we looked at last week, sends him on his way, not only with uh, letters of Mark, but also sends him on his way with the supplies that he needs to actually fulfill the job. And then in chapter two, we see Nehemiah come into Jerusalem, begin to take plans, uh, put plans into motion for how they're gonna rebuild Jerusalem, and we start to see things sort of move into motion. Now, chapter three is where we're at today. I'm gonna do something a little bit different, do something that, Maybe I might get struck for it. I don't know. We'll see. But we're not actually going to look at chapter 3. Is everybody okay with that? I know. Jaws dropped, right? Chapter 3 is one of those chapters that I would end up just having to read, and you guys would not hear it because it's just a lot of, of sort of information. So here's the homework, okay? Everybody pull out your swag. This here is a map, okay? This map, if you look, there's a little key at the bottom, a map key. The uh, 
smaller line is the walls of Jerusalem today. Okay, those were built by the Turks in the 1600s. That's the walls that you see when you flip on the news and see, and see Jerusalem, essentially, with the gold dome. Okay, that's not the original wall. The thicker black wall that you'll see is the wall of Nehemiah's day of Jerusalem. Everybody got that? And when you look at that wall, you're going to see tons of little gates all the way around. Okay, we have inspection gate, east gate, horse gate, so on, so on, so on. What you're going to do is, this week, this is homework, you're going to look at chapter 3, read chapter 3, and what it essentially is is just a breakdown of what people and what tribe and what part of uh, Israel built each gate. It's really all it is. It's so-and-so built this gate, so-and-so built this gate, so-and-so built this gate. But if you read it with this map, it'll be more interesting because you'll see actually which gates were built. Okay? So rather than me read it out loud and rather than everyone just stare at me and fall asleep, we're going to have you read it on your own with the map, and then we're going to study chapter 4. Everybody cool with that? Aaron is cool with that. Everyone else hates me. Okay, great. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. Everybody needs one friend. Okay. Um, Chapter 4. So, like I said last week, we talked about, of course, what always happens when God sends his people on mission, what always happens when someone has a desire to do something for the kingdom, opposition comes. Okay, last week we talked about that. We talked about it more in a personal and a spiritual sense. Uh, This week we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a corporate sense. Um, But ultimately, opposition comes. Okay, we talked about as a Christian, It's not a matter of if opposition will come. It's not a matter of if spiritual warfare will happen. It's just a matter of when, okay? The Christian walk, I'll say it again, the Christian walk is the hardest thing you will ever do in your entire life. Following Jesus, as amazing as as it is, and beautiful as it is, and enjoyable as it is, it's also the hardest thing that you will ever do. And if you don't believe me in that, you haven't walked with Jesus very long, okay? Anyone that's walked some miles with the Lord knows it's extremely hard. It's the greatest thing in the world, but it's also the hardest thing in the world, and we'll figure out exactly why that is tonight. Opposition will come. MacArthur said this, he said, John MacArthur said, when God's people attempt to do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition, Okay, when God's people attempt to do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. We have to understand that. So, getting into the text and taking a look at some of this opposition we see in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now, when Sanballat, we met him last week, heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stones. So the enemies of the Jews here, as they're trying to rebuild the walls, are jeering at them. They're mocking them. They're criticizing them. They're making fun of them, okay? Poking fun at what they're doing. C.H. Spurgeon said on his commentary in Nehemiah, he says, if a work has no opposition from Satan, we may be half afraid it's good for nothing, <laughs> He says, if you cannot make the devil roar, you have not done him much harm. I thought that was good, okay? As soon as things start to happen, as soon as Nehemiah's vision goes from being a vision to being an actual plan, and then they're actually building the wall, the opposition comes on strong, 
okay? It comes on strong. They begin to mock. They begin to literally be enraged and furious and upset at what Nehemiah is doing and what the Jews are doing to build God's kingdom. Now, the question is, why were they so upset? Why are they so enraged that these Jews would come back after the exile and try to rebuild their city? Well, few reasons. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, misery loves company. Okay, misery loves company. Look at verse two. It says, they say, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? They point out the weakness of Israel. So who do they think that they are rebuilding this city? Now, understand this, okay? Every nation at this time was greatly affected and greatly weakened by the Babylonian empire that had come in and essentially conquered the ancient world. Okay, and then the Persian Empire, who's now in control in our story, in our narrative now. Everyone was weak. Everyone was under a power higher than themselves, the Persian Empire. Everyone wants to see their city restored. Everyone wants to see their nation restored. And here's the Jews actually doing it. Okay? And they don't like it. They don't want to see them restored. They don't want to see them succeed. Because it reminds them that they're not, ultimately. Okay? Jesus said, right, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Why is that? Why is it that people sometimes from our hometown hate to see us succeed? Because it kind of makes them feel lame for not succeeding themselves, right? Isn't that interesting? Familiarity breeds contempt. Who are you to do that? You're just like me. You're from the same town that I am. Why would you do that? Why would you be able to do this? They're saying that to the Jews. They're saying, because you're just as weak as we are, because you've been affected by the Babylonians, by the Persians, just as much as we are, who do you think that you are trying to rebuild your city? Misery loves company. Now let me just say parenthetically, be aware of that. (laughs) Be aware of that thinking, okay? Watch out for that. This largely, I mean, this, this, this is seriously like, in my own life, I notice that those that are most similar to me, I show the least grace to. You ever notice that? Like the people that, that remind you of yourself, that do the things that drive you nuts, sometimes you have the least amount of grace for them, and oftentimes, you rejoice the least in their success because they remind you of yourself. Misery loves company. The second reason why they hate, the, the, why the enemies are so enraged at what Israel's doing is they hate true worship. Look at verse two. They mention, will they sacrifice? They point out the temple. What are you guys trying to do? You're trying to set up your city so that you can have your sacrificial system so that you can worship God again? Is that what you're trying to do? They're poking fun at, they're infuriated about the fact that these Jews would try to reset up a worship system to connect with their God. They're infuriated about that. I think that's extremely applicable to our context today, wouldn't you say? I mean, ultimately, as Christians, right now, in America, we're not necessarily being physically persecuted, are we? Okay, we're not. We're straight up. We're not being physically persecuted in this country for the most part. But what we are is we're being persecuted in other ways, okay? And largely what that is is our culture hates Christianity. Whether they would reveal that or not, whether they would believe that, whether whether they would admit that or not, they hate Christianity because Christianity has been dubbed intolerant. Okay? Our culture, I don't know if you know this or not, our culture is obsessed with tolerance. Okay? Now, not the old definition of the word. Okay? About 100 years ago, tolerance meant this. Tolerance meant that I don't agree with what you do, but I'm going to allow you to do that. Okay? I can't stop you from doing this act, but I'm going to, I, I don't agree with it, but I'm going to allow you. That was tolerance. Now tolerance in 2000, what is it, 15? 2015, tolerance means that not only am I going to allow you to do that, 
I, I have to agree with you because if I don't agree with your behavior, then I'm becoming intolerant, right? So as Christians, okay, we want to love people that are in sin. We want to love people that are non-believers. We want to bring the gospel to them. But ultimately, if we don't embrace their lifestyle, then we become what? We become intolerant, okay? And if we dis- even disagree with their lifestyle, we b- become intolerant. So in a lot of ways, we're dealing with the same kind of stuff, the oppression on the church right now is largely fixed on the fact that we will not waver on our truth. The third reason that the enemies are enraged is for some reason, they're mad about the fact that it's, it seems impossible that they would be able to rebuild the city in the first place. Look at verse two. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Now, picture this, okay, when Jerusalem fell, they, it, it was in ruins. They pushed the walls over. Stones were everywhere. Not small stones, big stones. So when Israel, when the Jews, when Nehemiah comes in and, and, and gathers everyone up to rebuild the walls, it's not like they can just build it on top of a nice flat foundation. Okay, there's tons and tons of junk and rubble and stuff that they have to move, that they have to try to navigate around. And the Jews are poking, f- or the Jews, the, the enemy is poking fun at the Jews for this. They're saying, how are you going to rebuild the walls? Look at the state, look at the ruins that your city is in. Now, I think that's extremely applicable for us as Christians. It's extremely applicable because one of the main things that the world seems to have a problem with is that Christians would say that, that God is working in us, that God is, is saving us. Because when, 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 when the enemy or when, when people that would oppress Christianity would look at Christians, they would say, how in the world would you possibly put all that rubble back together? Your life is a mess. Look at who you were. Look at what you did. I knew you before, you guys have friends before you got saved. I knew who you were before you accepted Jesus. I know what your life looks like. How do you ever expect to put that back together, okay? Very similar to what's happening in Nehemiah here. Look at your city. You honestly think you could rebuild that? It's in ruins. It's destroyed, but the good news of that is that the gospel is not that God comes in and picks up all the pieces of our life and puts them together, okay? God doesn't come and put the Humpty Dumpty back together, does he? He doesn't take all the little pieces and say, I'm gonna fix your life, I'm gonna take all the bad things that you did and somehow just unwork them and glue them back together. That's not what he does. He actually, re, you actually get reborn. You're an entirely new structure. He doesn't just try to put everything that you screwed up back together. He gives you completely new life, completely new identity, adopted into a completely new family with a completely new set of affections. That's good news. The enemy loves to remind us of our fragility. The enemy loves to remind us of the things that we've done. The enemy loves to remind us of the state of our wall, so to speak, to remind us of how in ruins our life is apart from Christ, how screwed up we are. In verse three, they say, as they're mocking the Jews, they say, if a, if a fox were to walk up on your wall, it would break. Okay, it's hyperbole, obviously. Fox is a light-footed animal. But to a great extent, the wall that they were building wasn't awesome. It was pretty weak, and they're pointing it out. Look how weak the wall that you're building is. If a fox walked on that, it would literally fall, and this is exactly how the enemy works. This is exactly how Satan works. We talked about this last week. He works through causing you to see your own weakness. But that's exactly how God works too, isn't it? When we see our weakness, it makes him strong. Our faith is enriched. Okay, let's talk just really quickly about the extent of the opposition. 
that they were facing in Nehemiah. If you just skip down to verse seven and eight, and we'll come back to, to the verses prior to that, but verses seven and eight say this. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the preparing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Okay, so picture this. Jerusalem has four directions around it, eastern, southern, western, northern, just like any place. On the east, they have the Ammonites, okay? On the south, they have the Arabs. On the west, they have the Ashdodites. And on the north, they have Samaria. And every single one of those nations does not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt, Kind of sounds like Israel right now, actually. <laughs> it sounds really familiar. Right now, Israel has Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Egypt all surrounded. They all hate Israel. They don't want Israel to be um, in existence. So they're completely surrounded. They're completely cut off from any retreat, from any kind of supply, anything like that. Their situation is dire. Also, it's interesting that all of these enemies came together. Like, they all were brought together because of a mutual hatred. Isn't that funny how that can bring people together? If everyone hates the same kid, all of a sudden you're all friends, right? (laughs) You can all pick on him together, you know? That's exactly what's happened. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. The Herodians, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all of a sudden, and even the Romans came together because they wanted Jesus dead, and it bound them together to get a job done. Ultimately, it's exactly what's happening here. The enemy is rallying all of these different nations, all of the surrounding nations of Israel together to ultimately try to stop Israel from rebuilding. It's kind of similar to where we're at in the church today, to be honest. I don't know if you guys realize it, but we are surrounded on every side by oppression in the church. We are. On one side, we have false religions. On one side, we have secularism. On another side, we have false Christian teachings, even coming from within the church. We have sin that we deal with within the church. We have an increasingly secular government. We have complacency within the church, biblical illiteracy, all these things that as the church that we're up against, and it feels sometimes like we're surrounded, but in reality, we never need to worry about the church growing. Did you know that? We never need to stress about the church going. If we were building it, we would, okay? But ultimately, God builds his church, and he uses us to do it. But God builds his kingdom. So even though sometimes even in Christianity we feel like we're surrounded, we're oppressed on every side, even from within, ultimately God is going to build his church. He will do it. And then lastly, in verse 10, just take a verse down there. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now, just last, like the cherry on top of the oppression that these Jews are dealing with, now, not only do they get it from every single side around them, now they're getting it from within. Judah, even their own people are causing problems, okay? Even Judah is saying, we can't do this. The strength of those who are doing this, they're, 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 they're failing. There's too much rubble. We can't do it. It's a perfect picture of the Christian life. Man, you're going to get oppression from every angle. You're going to get attacked from every angle. And primarily, you're going to get attacked from your own mind. That's the reality of it. The biggest enemy that you have as a Christian oftentimes is your own misthinking. The thoughts that you think in your mind that are not accurate, that are not true, that come from within. It's just a reality. So having said all that, having looked at the oppression that Israel, that the Jews are facing just trying to build the kingdom, 
I have five, if you're taking notes, if you're note takers and you like nice outlines, five battle strategies, okay? Five battle strategies that Nehemiah takes in chapter four and that hopefully we can learn from in our own personal life. Number one, we find in verses four through six. It says, hear, O our God. Now, after, pause there, after the enemies are making fun of, after the, the, the enemies are mocking the Jews for trying to rebuild the city, Nehemiah prays in response, okay? And here's his prayer in verse four. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Kind of a revengeful, like spiteful, angry prayer Nehemiah just spits out. I mean, he's kind of like, yeah, Lord, whatever they're saying to us, do it to them. <laughs> kind of like a Lord, get them prayer. You know what I mean? Like, take them out. A couple things on this prayer. First of all, is this, is this right? Is this a correct prayer? Okay, we need, we need some biblical interpretation here. Okay, just know that every prayer in the Bible is not a perfect prayer. Okay, here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible records it the way it is. Okay, the Bible just takes it the way it is. Okay, if David writes a psalm wanting to crush his enemies and praying that the Lord would just do all kinds of crazy things to them, that's not necessarily God's heart. It is a prayer of David. Okay, it's just a raw and recorded and real prayer of David, and it's recorded. The same here with this prayer of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is sort of praying a bitter and spiteful prayer, but it records it, records it accurately. And we have to be able to discern whether every prayer is one that we should model or not. In this case, I would say probably not. But let me just say, okay, prayer needs to be honest, okay? Just get it out there, okay? Sometimes when I'm praying, I'm like, I like, it's like I'm trying to be polite with God. Like I don't want him to know how screwed up I am. So I'm trying to pray the right things and use the right words. And I'm like, wait a minute. And God knows the depths of my heart. He knows exactly how screwed up I am. Why can't I just be honest with him? And sometimes through working out honesty out loud in prayer, God actually changes and works through your heart. So do I think Nehemiah's heart here was very good? Probably not. But I think it's good to just speak out what's in your heart to the Lord and allow him to work through you. And so many times wisdom is given in prayer times in that way, where you just kind of almost hear your own sinfulness coming out of your mouth, like, man, I shouldn't be praying that right now. This is totally jacked, and God can correct you. Now, notice in verse nine, this is, this is where we get our first battle strategy. This is good. Notice the methodology of their prayer in verse nine. It says, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So what did they do? They didn't just pray. They didn't say, we're going to go have a prayer meeting. They prayed and set a guard. They prayed and set a guard. They said, not only are we going to go seek the Lord, but we're actually going to take an action and set someone in place just to let us know and to be sure to guard us while we're praying. I think this is good because it kind of blows like our, our over-spiritualness out of the water a little bit. And what I mean by that is like over-spiritualness in the negative sense. One of my biggest pet peeves, okay? And if any of you guys, any of you guys have ever done this to me, don't worry. It's, I probably forgot. But I'm sure I've done it before too. But one of my biggest pet peeves is when I ask somebody if they can do something. Like, hey, can you help me with this? Or can you want to jump in on that? And they say, ah, oh, let me pray about it. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then they never tell me. And I have to be like, hey, did you pray about it? And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, Lord said no, sorry. You know? And they just didn't want to do it in the first place, but they just didn't have the function to tell me the truth. 
don't do that. I mean, the, 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 the whole I'm going to pray about it thing is good. We need to pray about things, especially big decisions. But what I love about this specific instance is that they pray, but they also act. It's prayer and it's action. It's both. It's not just one or the other. It's prayer and it's action. You guys ever try to steer a car that's not moving? It doesn't work. You need to have movement to be able to steer. And so many times I've talked to guys my age that have these big ideas about what they want to do for the Lord and what they want to go to plant churches, they want to go on the mission field, but I'm just waiting on the Lord and praying. And I'm like, well, are you doing anything to like try to get there? I mean, are you, are you, are you like talking to people and trying to learn? Are you making connections? Or, well, no, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And it's like, I get that, but at the same time, like, God wants to steer you when you're moving a lot of times, okay? So sometimes you're just sitting and saying, I'm just gonna wait and not do anything. It's not necessarily right. I think it's actually inaccurate. I think it's foolish. I think sometimes it actually takes more faith to just start to move and allow God to correct you because honestly, that can mean more crashes, but at least you're getting somewhere, okay? At least you're going. At least you're moving. So first battle strategy, pray and move, okay? So what does that mean practically? What does that mean in our lives today? If, 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 God, if you're being attacked in your life and you're praying about how to deal with something, what do we do about our son? Do we put him in this school? Do we put him in that school? What do I do about my job? Should I quit it? Should I stay there? Uh, wh- whatever it is, should I go to this school? Should I go to that school? Should I move? Should I stay? Okay, just start to follow your heart. As funny as that sounds, because we know our heart is wicked, right? But God has set affections in your heart, and he'll correct you, okay? So whatever that thing is, just start to move. He'll start to steer you. The second application here of battle we see, verses 11 through 14, and our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work, Okay, another good tactic here of the enemy is they're trying to instill fear. Okay, you guys aren't gonna know when we're gonna come. So that means you aren't sleeping at night. That means that you're stressed out every second expecting that bad thing to happen. Okay, that's called fear. Enemies always use fear. It's a great tactic. Does it sound familiar? Okay, does it sound familiar? There's a reason why Jesus said don't stress out about tomorrow, okay? Because when you're not sleeping and you're losing sleep, I said it twice, you're, you're stressing out constantly because you're so stressed about what's gonna happen the next day, that's a bad place to be in, okay? That's exactly where the enemy wants you, not trusting God, not resting in him, stressing and stressing and stressing about what's gonna come tomorrow. It's, it's, we, we need to put some labels on this stuff and realize that some of this stuff is actually the enemy working. They're actually the enemy trying to get at us. Stress is a huge one, I think. I think fearing things constantly, not trusting the Lord, but losing sleep over stuff that doesn't even ultimately matter and that God's in control of. Verse 12, and at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind, again, the Jews are still, even within, they're trying to keep them from building the city, opposition from within again. Verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed people by their clans. Okay, notice he puts them in the open places, in the places that are vulnerable, in the places that are weak, okay? When we withstand spiritual opposition, we need to be real about positions and places in our lives that are weak, okay? And we need to do things to prepare and to guard those areas. With their sword, their spears, their bows, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, 
your wives and your homes. Okay, so principle number two of battle in spiritual warfare, are you ready, is remember. Okay, remember, Nehemiah says, look, you guys are getting discouraged. You're allowing the taunting of the enemy to get inside of your head. Whatever they're doing is working. And he says, you guys need to what? Remember the Lord. Okay, remember the Lord. Every war has had a rally cry. Did you know that? Every war has a rally cry. In the Spanish-American War, it was remember the main. For any of you history people out there, in World War I, it was remember the Lusitania. I don't even know how to say it right, but the ship that was sunk by the Germans, okay? In World War II, it was remember Pearl Harbor, right? Remember what they did to us at Pearl Harbor, and that would sort of muster people to, to have passion for the cause. Napoleon constantly in history would remind his men of, of things that had happened to them in the past to rally his troops. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8, he, rem- he says, remember Jesus Christ. To Timothy says, remember Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what happens here in Nehemiah. As they're losing heart, as they're starting to fail, Nehemiah says, remember the Lord Jesus. So firstly, remember who fights for you. Okay, remember who's on your side. Okay, this seems like, I know it seems elementary, like obviously, Sam, we know this, but it's so important in those moments where you feel like you're getting beat up to remember that he is for you, okay? That he is for you, that he fights for you. And Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. And then he not only says, remember the Lord, but he says, remember who you're fighting for. So remember who's fighting for you and remember who you're fighting for. He says, remember your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes, this is an aspect of spiritual warfare we need to think about. When we're waging war every day against the flesh, against sin, against the world, against the enemy, all the lies that would come into our head, you guys need to remember that you're not just simply fighting for yourself. You're fighting for your families. You're fighting for your kids. You're fighting for your spouse. I mean, when you're in marriage and, and, and the enemy is attacking your marriage, Okay? You're not just fighting for your happiness so you can have a happy marriage. You're fighting for your spouse. It just hit me last night. I was just sitting on the couch before my daughter's bed. She's one and a half. She's the cutest girl in the whole world. And I was sitting there, and we have this Jesus Bible. And I flip a page, and I'll say, where's Jesus? And she says, Jesus. And she points him out. just like melts my heart, right? She knows who Jesus is, at least the little stick figure one with the white robe. Um, and as I'm, as I'm going through this and I'm kind of like just telling her as simply as I can like what Jesus did in this story and how much he loved the people that, that he ministered to in this story, it just hit me like, man, I need to be strong for my daughter. Like the spiritual warfare that we go through, the opposition that we take on is not just for ourselves, it's for our kids, it's for our spouses, it's for our friends, it's for this church. It's for all those around us. When we fight those wars, as small as they may seem, the little ones at work, the little ones at home, whatever it is, they all are for something and someone. Okay, Nehemiah says, don't forget who fights for you and don't forget who you're fighting for because if you don't build this wall and if you don't wage war, then we're all gone. That was a crazy thing, by the way, in Israel, talking to our guide who lived there. And talking about the military and, and just realizing the weight there of the military that if we don't defend our borders, we don't just get killed, we get butchered. I mean, that was a reality in Israel for them. It's not just a matter of they, they, they come in and take over our country. No, they will murder us in horrible ways because that's how much they hate the Jews. Okay, as extreme as that sounds, it's nothing compared to the reality of the spiritual warfare that we end. Satan is not out to just bump you off course. He's out to crush you completely. Okay, he's out to completely pull you away from all of God. 
to completely lie to you, to completely blind you. And guys, we're in a battle, and not just for ourselves, but for all those that we love, and especially as parents, we need to fight for our homes, for our kids. It's extremely important. Principle number three we find in verse 15. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. This is one of the coolest leadership principles, battle principles in the entire scriptures, okay? This is one of my favorite. Here you have people that are saying, you know what? We can't just go out and build, and we can't just go out and fight. We have to do both. So what are we going to do, okay? What are we going to do? We're going to strap our swords on, and we're going to build in such a way that allows us to be ready at any moment to fight whenever we need to, okay? It's an offense, and it's a defense. It's not football, okay? You don't step out. You're the defense. Okay, defense, now sit on the bench while the offense does the thing. Okay, offense, now sit on the bench while the defense. It's not football. It's basketball. Your offense, your defense, your offense, your defense. There's no breaks here for these Jews, There's no, let's take a nap. There's no, let's just build for now, or let's just go battle for now. They have to do both, okay? And again, this is an amazing principle for Christians as we battle against spiritual opposition. It's not the time to just build, and it's not the time to just fight. It's time for both, okay? We need to build the kingdom, but we also need to do it with our swords. We also need to do it in a way where we can battle spiritual opposition when it comes. We need to do both. There was a saying in World War II, uh, after, shortly after Pearl Harbor, it said, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You ever heard that before? I thought that was cool. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition, okay? <laughs> it's both, okay? We need to build the church, but we need to fight. Now, people get to one side or the other, don't they? Okay, there's some people out there that only want to fight. They're called watchdog ministries, okay? They're the guys that literally listen to podcasts all day so they can crucify any dude that says anything they don't believe with. Okay? That's like all that they do. And I would say to them, go build something for crying out loud. Go build God's kingdom. Go pray for somebody. Go do something that's actually building up things. Okay? And then you have the other guys that are like, oh, we don't need theology. We don't care. We'll fellowship with any kind of religion. We just want to see social justice happen. We just want to build the kingdom. And I, to them, I would say, it does matter. You do have to fight for truth. Okay? It's a balance. We have to fight for truth, but we also need to build the kingdom. We have to do both. We're called to do both. It's extremely important. I've heard it said about pastors that we pray with one eye open. <laughs> okay, I'm in the back and I'm worshiping God, but I also have one eye open. Who's coming in? Who's going out? What's going on? I think we need to have that approach with our families. We need to have a, that approach in the people that we lead in our lives. Okay, we lead, but we also defend. We build, we also fight. It's a mixture, it's both. And then the fourth thing in verse 19. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. Okay, so they're spread out. The wall, if you look at your little map, it looks small on the map, but it's fairly big. Okay, they're spread out from gate to gate. 
Verse 20, and in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So the issue that they're having, the problem that they're having is that they're all spread out all the way around the wall, and if the enemy were to come, he could simply pick them off because they're not unified. They're not all together. They're not in their battle formation, okay? They're not ready to take these, these, these enemies on all together. So what they do is... They say, why don't you each person take a trumpet. If you see the enemy, you blow the trumpet. We all converge. We're all there. We're all ready to fight. Okay? I can't say this enough. It's so important that we are in community. Okay? You hear people say that all the time at church, but it's true. There's a reason why we have the body of Christ. There's a reason why we have small groups at Heritage or huddle groups. There's a reason why we do that. We do that so that we're not stuck out by ourselves, so the enemy can pluck us off. We need each other, and when we're struggling, when we're having issues, we need to have ways and opportunities to be able to voice that to each other so that we can support each other. Does that make sense? It's extremely important. Nehemiah knew it as a leader. He said, if we're going to really face our enemy here, if we're going to really battle our enemy, then we need to be together at the drop of a hat. Now, if you're coming to church and you never get plugged in and you never have people that you fellowship with and you never have people that you open up with about things that you struggle with, if you never have any of that, if no one's ever gonna ask you how you're doing, then you literally are just stuck out on your own and the enemy will go after you. You ever watch National Geographic? Okay, the little like sickly elephant in the back gets picked off. Just saying. I know it's brutal, it's sad, but it's true, okay? We need to be in the pack. We need to be together. We need to have fellowship, and we need to have lines of communication where we can do stuff and deal with stuff together. And lastly, number five. Number five is we need to stay dressed, and this is not a purity talk, okay? That was a joke, sorry. Uh, Stay dressed, okay, never mind. I I thought that was gonna be funny, but. Verse 21, it says, so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Verse 22, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, This says a lot about the seriousness of the situation that they were in, okay? Their enemy was so on top of it, so surrounding them. Their situation was so dire that they said, you know, we're not even gonna get undressed when we go to bed. We're going to bed with our swords on. We're going to bed with our armor, with our clothes. We're going to bed ready to fight at any moment, at any time. That was the reality of their situation. Now, can I just say that... (laughs) This isn't a, like, let's bag American Christians because I am one. But in reality, guys, we are so comfortable right now as Christians, especially in this valley. I mean, it's just like so many Christians in this valley, so many good churches. That's not a bad thing. That's a blessing, I think. But at the same time, man, we are like in our PJs, in bed. We're not ready for war. We're not ready for battle. We are comfortable Christians, extremely comfortable Christians. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
interesting language. Paul uses that of a soldier. He says that you are enlisted for a purpose to build God's kingdom, to be sanctified like a soldier, and a soldier does not get so entangled in things that he can't go at the drop of a hat and fight whenever it's necessary for him. Okay, well, what does that look like for us? Can I just be honest with my conviction on this? We spend so much time on worthless entanglements in this country. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Netflix. It's like insane how much time we spend on things that absolutely do nothing for us other than entertain us and make us more shallow. Okay, now this isn't to demonize those things, okay? It's not to demonize those things, but it's to say that we are like sleeping in our bed and the enemy is so getting his way because we're not in bed ready to fight. We're not having our sword strapped to our side. We're mindlessly just eking our way through life with as much things as we can do to ease the pain of how much we hate our job and get to the next day and check our social media. That's ultimately what most of us are doing in this country and now as Christians, okay? Now stuff's coming. I'm not gonna be that guy that's like, oh, everything's gonna go, but stuff's coming that's gonna make it harder to be a Christian. And I'm curious, what are we gonna do when the heat gets turned up a little bit? when all that we've been doing with our time is shallow things, not pursuing the Lord, not putting on armor, not really trying to strengthen each other as a body, but just simply growing lazy in the Lord. And when that stuff happens, you know, we get so worked up in America about political things that concern Christianity. What if they take away this? What if they take away that? And we get so upset. And I wonder sometimes, is that because we're concerned about the gospel or is that because we're concerned about our comfort? Oh, if they take that away, then we're gonna, we could be persecuted. Man, if they do that, then we could be in trouble. And I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for our liberty as Christians, but at the same time, is it concern for the gospel and the church, or is it we just don't want to be uncomfortable? Because the reality is the gospel actually thrives in places that are extremely secular, extremely poor, extremely poverty-stricken, places with people that are hurting not places with people that are sort of religious just enough to feel good about themselves. The gospel is thriving in countries right now where it's persecuted. The gospel's thriving in countries right now where it's not accepted. Christians are being saved there. So it's kind of interesting to me. Just throw all that out there to say, are we ready? Okay, this isn't like a make you feel bad thing, but this is just like take an inventory this week and say, ask yourself these questions. Am I building God's kingdom? Am I, am I fighting spiritual oppression in my house? Because guess what? It's there. I guarantee it. It's there. You just maybe you don't see it. Am I fighting for my kids? Am I fighting for my spouse? Are we ready for persecution if it comes? Are we ready for the call that God may have us to go do? Are we moving forward? Are we trusting God in faith? And I'll just leave you with this 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So this is a conviction for me today, okay? I read this and I say, man, Nehemiah was an incredible leader, but he didn't go take a super long nap. He didn't go lounge around. He didn't spend time on Netflix. He was ready to battle all the time. And I just, I just are we willing to do that? Are we willing to do what's necessary to build God's kingdom? Are we willing to get up early and to serve? Are we willing to throw that thing out in the house that we know is gonna corrupt our kids or ourselves? Are we willing to turn that off? Are we willing to do whatever it takes necessary to build God's kingdom because there's a real enemy and a real oppression that's on us? Does that make sense?
The Christian life is not like floating down a nice stream, okay? It's swimming up an intense current, and we cannot stop for a second, okay? And I just needed a kick in the pants today to say, what are you doing? Start swimming. Stop floating. This isn't a vacation. This isn't Hawaii. This is time to build the kingdom. Heaven's coming, and that's going to be great, but right now we have a commission, and that's to build a wall, Okay, to build a kingdom, and we can't do that laying in bed watching Netflix. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love Netflix. It's great. Documentaries are cool. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? Not to end on like a super negative note or anything. I should tell a joke or something. I don't know. God, I'm so thankful tonight, Lord. I'm just thankful that you convict us as well as encourage us, God. I just pray that both would have taken place tonight. God, I pray that we would be encouraged to know that you are for us, God, that you fight for us. Lord, that this kingdom work is not something that is resting on us like it's not gonna happen if we don't do it, but at the same time, God, I pray you would give us a sense of urgency. Lord, a sense of urgency for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for those that are are not yet saved, God, to share the gospel with them. Lord, a sense of urgency to protect our family, our kids, our wives, our husbands, Lord, from spiritual opposition, Lord, to wake up ready to put our armor on, to to deal with whatever would come our way. God, I pray that you would give us hearts that are ignited tonight and ready, Lord, to take whatever comes our way. God, I just pray against being a lazy, flat Christian. Lord, I wanna have depth in you. God, I wanna have feeling and compassion in you. Lord, I wanna be moved by those that hurt. I don't wanna be distracted by things that are mindless, God. Help me to navigate that, Lord. Help us as a church to navigate that. God, I just pray for peace in our lives, Lord. And I know sometimes peace can only come through conflict, God. Sometimes peace can only come through oppression. So Lord, just work, I pray. And we love you, we trust you. Thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you guys. We'll see you Sunday.